Good afternoon. Okay, we're up to Parsha Vayechi. Last Parsha in Sefer Bereshis. So, Vayechi Yaakov Beretz Mitzrayim. Yaakov lived in the land of Egypt. Last week we had Yaakov coming down and finally reuniting with his son Yosef. And now he's in Mitzrayim and he lives there for a total of 17 years. Vayehi Yemei Yaakov and Yaakov ended up living the days of his life, Shnei Chayov. The years were Sheva Shonim, seven years, Va'arbaim, and 40, Uma'as Shona, and 100 years. So he lived until 147 years. And just to notice that both parshios that we, in the Torah that are called Chai, that are called Chayim, for example, Chayei Sarah and Vayehi, both are referring to death. It's referring to the death of Sarah and referring to the death of Yaakov. So the Torah is hinting to us that, and I saw this in the Sefer Aznai, Rav Zaman Sarotskin, as I said, a Chumash, called Aznaim Torah, that the Torah is hinting to us that really the life in this world is meant for a longer and more eternal life. And it's letting us know that they went on to their true emesdika life, their true life, um, with, uh, you know, in, in Gan Eden. So that's... That's our job. That's our job over here. And I just want to mention, and maybe this is going to take up a nice amount of time uh, for today, but it's certainly connected to the Parsha. Um, it's not going to be in the Psukim per se, but on this idea of death also bringing life, there's a big issue that exists out in the world, and it's getting um, more and more steam it's gaining more and more steam and that is cremation and now the newest thing they just passed a law this week in new york is called composting yeah. composting is now uh legal in new york what does that mean? uh they take the body and they compost the body and it's it's supposed to be greener use it as fertilizer use it as fertilizer so now flowers could grow from you um, well, instead of uh, just whatever, it's part of that as well. Because yeah. Not all of the body is turns to ash, and there are big chunks of yeah. Cremation's a, a cremation is like a rotisserize first. Okay? Yeah, we're and and then and, then, and, and, and they pollute the air. Yes. How about that? And, and, and <laughs> Leads and to pollution. So people don't understand what. Cre- I mean, we they don't know. So that's a, that's what I want to mention over here. That's what I mentioned over here, and that is. Um, at least in the circles that I, not that we walk in, but it's very, very common for me as a Rav. To, uh, it's gotten to a point where it's a standard conversation for anybody who's not Torah observant to think about cremation. It's become norms within the mainstream, and a lot of that has to do with marketing from crematoriums and others, because the whole thing is a farce. A lot of what they claim is the gains uh, of cremation is actually is actually not true, and any any sort of um, pushback that a person can have on this and to go ahead with a natural and proper kosher burial, we need to know how to rebuff those claims, because any claim that they I've heard claims, for example, of to not take up space. Mm-hmm. There's not enough space. And the truth is, there's studies that were shown that um, if every person, if every person, and it's not going to be a person because there are people who cremate, 
But if every person alive and uh, would be buried, have a normal burial in the United States over the next 10,000 years, it would take up 1% of land. Okay? And besides for that, besides for that, it would actually, it's better if you think about it in the larger picture. And I was talking to somebody about this. He said what he tells people is, you know, if you turn a, a body to ash or you do it, and then you, what are you going to do put the ash? You put in an urn in your backyard and you have your own little, your own little uh, thing going on there. He says, well, why, why not keep everybody together in a set spot, in a set, you know, in a Jewish cemetery and, uh, and Shalom Al Yisrael. So that, any claim you have, there, you know, there's, there, we, we have to, it's very important to know how to push back. And what Rabbi Zon, who's the director of the National Association of Kadisha, he really asked Rabbanim across the country, uh, Parshas Vayechi, to, to put focus on this, both for us and also, not only for Rabbanim, but people, uh, you know, who are Torah observant, it's very important that we know how to, um, ha- you know, ha- how to respond to these conversations and also how to take ad- advantage of opportunities to, to let people know that the proper way to go about it is to have a pro- uh, kosher burial. That is correct. So, so sometimes, sometimes costs associated are a problem. There's no question about that. Um, very often, very often, cost is not what's getting... There are times. And if there is, yeah, it's important for funds, for the community to have funds to cover that. And if anybody here is ever in a situation like this, let them know that if it's a cost problem, then it's a... But there's a lot of people who are cremated after they spend thousands on a coffin... They spend money on a wake and embalming and just to look good and the clothing that they're going to wear so people could look at and they spend thousands and thousands of dollars and the cost of a kosher burial all of a sudden is not important. It's really a, not a money issue as much as, much as it is a matter of importance mm-hmm. to a lot of people, but it's true. There, there have been times, and as a Kehillah, Baruch Hashem, we've, been Zohar, we've never here locally had a situation where somebody's been cremated due to a lack of funds. Every single time we've pulled together the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that are that are needed, and uh, every single halachic cemetery will work with us, and the uh, funeral homes will work with us to uh, to do our best to pull it together. But th- that's never an excuse either, and people should know that it's important that that we tell people that cost can't be uh, can't be an, an impact on you, and it shouldn't. That's what we do as a kahilah. That's what we do as a as a Jewish community for each other. Okay, so I want to focus on this just a, you know, just a little bit, because, you know, Parshas Vayechi, you know, Rabbi Zon did ask that we, we focus on this, and, and there, there's two primary things that each and every one of us are going to, at some point, pretty much guaranteed be involved in, pretty much guaranteed. Um, and that is situations like this, because nobody does live forever, so there are going to be the conversations with extended relatives and so on and so forth, and also the conversation of end-of-life issues that, that crop up, which more often than not, um, when you go to a medical facility, the doctors, for some reason, feel that their job is to predict as opposed to heal. We know that in Yiddishkeit, what we, make, what we use doctors for, what the purpose of a doctor is to be a shliach, to be a messenger of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, to heal. The job of a doctor is not to predict quality of life. But very often, they do. And I don't know if it's because Hashem wants to send us a message or what, but more often than not, I found 
doctors, and doctors are great, again, for healing, more often than not, they're wrong. I, can't, I, could, I cannot even count on my hands that I'm not the most experienced rabbi. I've been doing this 12 years. I, cannot, I, I can no longer count on my hands how many people I've been told, as their rabbi, they're, they, they have a few hours to a few days, and they've come back to shul and lived for another couple years. I, I've had this. And it's, it's not even like, it's like, in my mind, the moment they tell me that there's only this amount of time left. Now, I'm not, now if somebody's Kanainahara and whatever, it's not. But very often, it's, there's a specific illness that's causing something. And, that, and they turn into predictors. And they're, and they're assuming, the Rabbi Shalom doesn't work with statistics. And specifically with Yidin. Specifically with Kal Yisrael. There's no such thing as statistics with us. We don't function like that. And it's very important that we know this for ourselves. And, and you know, this is perhaps even not so easy. And it's... Uh, harder conversations to have, but it's important to know that that the Rebbeinu Shalom decides when a person's when a person's time is up, and that we have the proper documentation in place, and we know when and how to uh, to ask a shaila. And the main point that you're going to hear over and over is quality of life. That even if they make it, they're not going to have the proper quality of life. And the question is, who knows what quality of life is? I want to share a. a you know, there's a well-known person, uh, a well-known doctor, actually. He was, uh, we spoke about him a number of years ago. Um, he, he, he eventually passed away in, in, I think, November of 2020 um, at the age of 83. Um, Dr. Rachamim Malamir Kohn, who was uh, Israel's most famous terminally ill patient, and he suffered from ALS. Um, he was paralyzed from the neck down, and he outlived four of his doctors who told him he only has a few, um, you know, a, a little bit of, of time left. And ultimately what happened was, uh, 30 years ago, um, the doctor spelled out for him and his wife, his wife's uh, Mrs. Elisheva, Malamir Kohn, and they explained to them what the process is going to be, and first the limbs are going to become paralyzed, then the muscles of the neck and the esophagus, and the tongue, and they're telling him that you know eventually he won't be able to wipe any fly off his nose, and ultimately he outlived many of them, and he he did become completely paralyzed uh, after he gained ALS. And again, Baruch Hashem, this is a good story. So you'll hear stories, you know, but it's good to hear these things to know that there's no way anybody ultimately will know. After he had ALS, he wrote seven books. The last book he wrote through uh, through his eye movement. They have these incredible machines that they put out. No, I will go. Okay, he davened three times a day. He came to shul every Shabbos. He went out regularly, theaters, weddings, restaurants. He he couldn't eat, but he sat with he sat with his friends. He sat with his family. He spent time, and um, and he he observes. He says, you know, he's now what he said because he ended up uh, passing away two years ago. He said, uh, you know, life today is becoming cheaper and cheaper, and. He says many people will find their expression of life in drugs and violence and so many things. Um, and, you know, he said that a 16-year-old, a, a teenager said to him that, um, uh, asked him if it's okay to shorten her own life because she's also suffering. Because they, he was telling that, he was telling her, and she knew his story, that doctors wanted to shorten his life. And they were recommending that he shorten his life to alleviate his suffering. And there was a, really a teacher who was really struggling. And this teacher says, you know, I'm also, I'm also suffering. Maybe I should also. And, and, and they connected on that level 
on that level of people going through, uh, you know, real difficult stuff. Some people are going through standard teenager stuff, but some people go through real, 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 real stuff. Um, and he, actually, this this uh, Dr. Uh, Malamir Khan, he watched an interview on Israeli television of another ALS sufferer who was interviewed and decided to, um, decided to end their, li- their life. They said, I, wrote, I lost interest in life and that. Uh, and then in the last moment, this person said, you know, I hope I'm not making a mistake by doing this. I hope not making a mistake. And this is, this is, you know, serious. And when Dr. Cohen, who watched this, he says, he says, it's clear to me that this person on one hand wanted, you know, was having a very hard time. And on the other hand, wasn't so sure that they were, that they were doing the right thing. Okay. And, you know, maybe if this person had been taken care of and, had been offered the proper support, maybe they, you know, would have felt differently about, uh, you know, about uh, ending their life. And so these things are very tough. It's very tough to know what does quality of life mean? And, and you know, what's Hashem's message for us in the world? We're not prophets. We don't ultimately know. But we, what the underlying reason and source are, which is why these conversations, again, are very, very, very tough. And we, can, and we can't judge. But we have to know that there's, there's HaKadosh Baruch who gives us life and it's HaKadosh Baruch who, who we have to leave it up to to decide when life is breathed into the person, when the person comes into the world, which is why when a woman's expecting the blessing we give is B'Sha'at Tova, which means at the right time. We don't know. The doctors think they know when the baby's coming. They don't know when the baby's coming. They say B'Sha'at Tova. <laughs> B'Sha'at Tova. You say it the way. Whenever Hashem decides, when Hashem gives, Hashem takes. Whenever Hashem decides, that's... Ultimately, that's ultimately how it's, uh, it's going to pan out. And what's quality of life? So I want to just share one more anecdote and then we'll, we'll get. So there's a, uh, a story brought down about Rav Shalom Shadron, who uh, spent many years, you know, we, we know him as the Magid of Yerushalayim and Rabbi Pesach Kron has books and books and books based off of Rav Shalom Shadron's stories. But he, Rav Shalom Shadron, for many years was a mashkiach in the yeshiva. And one of the students started slipping a lot from the path of, of Torah. And uh, nice guy, nice boy, but uh, really started getting caught up in the glamour of the world away from yeshiva. And Rav Sholem was keeping an eye, was keeping an eye on this young man, and he saw how things were progressing with him and, you know, slowly but surely working his way away from the, uh, the classes. And uh, at a certain point, he, he knew it was going to come to a point where this kid's going to come to him and say, you know, I'm leaving yeshiva to go real life, to live life in the real world, right? Okay, so one morning it happens. One morning it happens. He tried supporting this kid along the way, but you can't, you, you, you can't. Everybody's going to have their own Bechira. So one morning the boy sits down and he says, he says, Rav Sholem, I need advice. Um, I've got a number of questions that have to do with Judaism and the style of Judaism that that we're living, and I want to sit down with Rebbe and explain to Rebbe what my what's bothering me, and therefore decisions that I'm, you know, uh, my my future path. So, so should I be honored to talk to you? They set a time, and the two of them sit down, and the boy starts explaining why you know yeshiva is really getting in his way of living life, where you know where he has to already got out there and start earning money and and um, he, he already has some offers and he's spoken to some friends. He, he had himself set up to 
overcome any possible pushback. And Rav Shalom says, all right, let's start talking. But before you ask your many questions, I want to ask you one simple question. I also, you know, everybody in life struggles, and I also uh, have one specific question that's on my mind, and maybe you could help me answer the question. Maybe you could help me answer this one question. And the kid doesn't have enough life experience to know that this is his end. <laughs> he doesn't know yet what this question is going to do. But this kid's like, oh, my Rebbe needs help. Uh, of course, I know. I know how to answer Shalom's questions. Okay. So he says, okay, I have a short question. And, my, and it's very important to me. And what I want to know is, whose life is richer? A human or an animal? Who lives a richer life? And this kid's looking at Rav Shalom. And she's like, you seem like a smart rabbi, <laughs> right? Um, and he says, of course, a person, a person lives a richer life. So Rav Shalom said, okay, seems like you were able to answer this deep question right away. I want you to know you can't answer that question flippantly. Uh, I'll tell you what's bothering me. I'll tell you what's really bothering me and, and why I feel that there's more to the question than, than you're answering Let's take a bird. Let's take a bird. A bird could travel to any country it wants. Could fly around the world. And there's no, le- there's no shortage of food. It could go from St. Louis to Florida to the Bahamas, go to Cancun. It could make its way around. It could enjoy. And, you know, everything's good. Maybe, maybe we should, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm better off living like a bird. Maybe, maybe a bird has a richer life. The guy's just looking at him. He's like, he's like, okay, yeah, there's something, there's some logic there. There's something to it. Okay. So Shalom keeps going. He says, you know, but then I was thinking, maybe a cow has a richer life than me. I'll tell you why. Because a cow eats straw and it doesn't need much, but it's, you know, it's like fine. The kid says, yeah, but I don't know, Rebbe, I don't know if I'd be a cow, because it's like a cow, like there's no restaurants, there's no like, there's no like variety. You know, like it's for sure better to be a human and have variety in life than to, than to just be a cow that lives outside in the sand. Like there's no chocolate, there's no, you know, there's no stuff. So Sean says, I know, but I was thinking that maybe a cow... You know, like, a cow doesn't need, like, a soft mattress. Doesn't need a king-size bed. It just, the world is its bed. And everything's fine with the, everything's uh, fine with the cow. It doesn't need clothing. Doesn't need clothing. And the boy's like, you know, yeah, but maybe clothing's good. You know, it, uh, you know, it could add some style. It adds some style. So he says, yeah, but what if, if you didn't need clothing, you wouldn't, they can't even need, like, who needs the stress of all the style? Just a minute. Uh, stress of style. So he says, yeah, but, I, you know, I, I still prefer to eat fish and meat. I still prefer to eat, I think, like, that type of diet works better. And everything he said, Rosh said, yeah, but maybe there's another type of animal, you know, that could, uh, could enjoy that too. And, um, you know, they had this conversation back and forth, and that's, that's, really, that's really how it went. Okay, so Rosh is describing maybe a fish, what do you do with a fish? Is a fish a swim? I don't know. It could also get eaten. There's more. There's more. And they're going, they're going back and forth. And the 
finally, the Rav Shalom says, you know, I, I, I really think that, that an animal might have a richer life than a human. And the boy says, you know, me too. Me too. I, I, you know, the, the, I'm not sure which animal yet. I'm not sure which animal yet, but I, it, it's taka. I think there's something to an animal having a, a richer life than a human. So Shalom says, okay, as long as I got you to that spot, I want to that spot, and we're in agreement. We're in agreement. Now I'm happy to have the conversation with you. So the boy says, what? He says, now you can start asking your questions, because we both agree that by you wanting to walk away from something that is the difference between a human and an animal, you're agreeing that, okay, so you're going to live the rest of your life like a behemoth. That's it, because that's a richer life. You want to walk away from the, what's the difference between a human and an animal? The differences are Bechira. Our free will, our, our struggle, our ability to connect with something greater. And the, when you connect with something greater, there's struggles that come along with it. And there's decisions that need to be made. But if Taka, an animal's life is more richer, so then I know what you're going to be asking me. And my answer to your questions are, you're welcome to go live like an animal. You're welcome to. And, and he was like, he was, you know, and that set the... <laughs> the basis of their conversation. Now, I don't know what ended up happening. I don't know if the, you know, oh, now he's a big Rashiva. I don't know, big Rashiva. But he, he's setting, the, the parable that he's giving is setting a tone for us. Like, notice, so many things that we're after in this world can be gotten in a much easier fashion. The question is, what actually is a quality of life? Is it, now that I'm hooked up to a machine and I can't eat all that food, so now I'm not a human? It's not worth my life. I'm not going to have that same spring in my step or, you know, if somebody loses the ability to walk or somebody's ability to talk and now, now there's, no, there's nothing else that I could bring to We could bring a lot of things to the world. And to add a dimension of that, I want to add a, a, you know, this is something that not necessarily it has to be shared in the right if and I hope I, in the right way and I hope I articulate this well. I believe we've shared this before. And that is sometimes a quality of life is by allowing others to be better because of us. And this is something, it's a very profound conversation that I, I had with my mother. When she, you know, and she wasn't used to receiving help from others and she was used to being on the, the giving end. But she kind of like brought out this idea and noticed that sometimes HaKadosh Baruch Hu will put us in situations, whether it's due to an illness, whether it's due to just a lack of something, where Everybody else who needs to help, I, I don't want, nobody wants to be on the receiving end. We don't like being takers. But practically speaking, when I'm in that situation that I did not ask to be, do you know how much better everybody else is because of that situation? The people who are tending to that person. Now everybody else is working on their this. Isn't that making the world a better place? Now we don't daven for this. We don't daven to be in a situation. But there's also quality to that. There's quality. Now there's people doing chesed around me for something that they're bunched for whatever reason, put me into this situation, there, there's, I get scar for that too. I get reward for them being better for this situation that, the, that I never asked to be in. And it's, it's a very hard place. And I never even would have thought of this if I wouldn't have, have you know, had my mother. But again, when people don't understand why we're here and what we're doing, so it's like, oh, okay. So, so what's the purpose? Is it, you, you can't eat the fancy food. You can't, you can't go to restaurants anymore. You can't, they're not going to be able to go out. They're not going to be able, you might as well just like end it, you, you know. Might as well end it now. End it now. And that's a simple way. Sometimes it's more complicated. It's true. There are situations where there is really 
balance that has to be put in, but the overarching thing has to be that quality of life is determined by Torah. Quality of life, what is life? What is death? That's determined by Torah. We're not here to Hashem Nasan, Hashem Lakach. We're not here to to uh, you know decide what any of those things are. And these are things that we really need to dig in on, know for ourselves very well, and find opportunities and conversations with others. Because all they hear, all that's out there in the world is cremation marketing. And the beauty of it and, and all these things that go on, and the truth is, it's a disaster. The whole market's a disaster. They don't even know what ashes they're getting, and the, the whole thing's a disaster. But they're not hearing this. So the, the, who's, who's bringing the narrative out there? It's very important that, we're, that we start sharing the true narrative of what the Rabban Shalom wants. Okay, so let's get into the parasha now. So here we go. Let's uh, get into the actual psukim. So uh, second pasuk, pasuk of Tes, This is a fascinating expression that we find in the Torah when Sadiqim pass, their days come together to pass on with them. The time that they spent, and this is a fascinating blessing that Jews give each other. When you wish, want to wish somebody a long life in Hebrew, you say you should be zeicha, you should merit Arichas Yomim. Long days. Arichas Yomim. Long days. And the, I believe it's the Chassam Seifer. He asks, why don't we bless each other for Arichas Shonim? To have long years. So he says, because we're mentioning this verse, which is that when a person passes, their days that were utilized properly come together and accompany them. So really by Arichas Yomim, the blessing of long days, which means days that have you know, experience and growth in them, is the blessing of Arichas Yomim. Because the more days that a person actually lives properly, the more years they are. As the parable goes, a person came up to heaven. I'm not going to say this right because I don't have it. A person comes up to heaven and they see, uh, not heaven, a person looks at a cemetery, goes to the cemetery, they see uh, a, bu- a whole bunch of tombstones, and it seems like everybody there died young. One tombstone says, you know, uh, you make the person live two days. Another tombstone says uh, five years. Another tombstone was ten years. Another was a month. And he asked the cemetery director, like, what's up? So he says, this is, this is the cemetery of heaven. Here on the tombstone, it writes how many days people actually lived, as opposed to days that people wasted. Right? How many years they lived as opposed to wasted? Some sort of parable uh, like that. Right? So you come up, and some people are younger, people are older. You have somebody who, you know, in our eyes died young, but they, they lived good days. They accomplished, you know, what they, what, I, what they were sent here to accomplish in whatever way, shape, or form. And, you know, in heaven, they're, they're older, and their people are older and it's younger. We don't really know who's young and who's old. There's a Yiddish expression like that, too. You don't know who's young and who's old. Yeah, people are like, oh, the other... What do we know? We don't know how much time we have. We don't know who's living. We don't know what's happening. We don't know. We don't have young people. They look like they're going on 119. Mm-hmm. Right? They're just, they're, they're down. They're, no, there's no vibrancy. There's no, you know, and everything's like a problem. And uh, people are 119 and they're going on six. They're, they're fine. They're, you know, they're 18. They're out. They're good. They're not, you're not, you know, it's, who's young, who's old? There's this expression. You don't know. Vekavu Yimei Yisrael almost means that the days of Yaakov, the vibrancy of Yaakov, the used days of Yaakov came, they accompanied him up to heaven. So he knows that his days are coming together and his time is, is up. 
So he calls this on Yosef, he says to him, please do me a favor, place your hand under my thigh, which is an expression of take an oath, and promise me you're not going to bury me in Egypt, you're going to take me to Eretz Yisrael. Okay? First of all, why do you make him take an oath? Second of all, why does he want to be buried in Mitzrayim? This is a well-known question. Many of the Rishonim ask why um, Yaakov asks Yosef to take an oath. Usually you ask somebody to take an oath if you don't trust them. If their word is not good enough. You need something else. Like Avram had Eliezer swear. Because Eliezer had a daughter, you know, he had an eye out for Yitzchak. So maybe there could be a change. Maybe, you know. So Avram tells Eliezer, I want you to swear you're going to take a girl from this place. Okay, a little, little added uh, seriousness to the man. Why did Yaakov have to ask seriousness to Yosef? So I shared with him in Hamar a few days ago that the Ramban gives a couple answers. One is that it's not that he didn't trust Yosef, but he wanted to show the seri- that when Yosef comes to Paro to ask Paro to bury Yaakov outside of Egypt, they, they needed Paro's permission. Nobody was able to just leave Egypt. He couldn't leave the country. You needed a passport, you know what I mean? You needed to, you have the proper uh, papers. So when he would ask Paro, Paro would realize the seriousness. And when Yosef says, my dad made me swear about this. So it was more to show for Paro. Ramban says maybe it was for Yosef. Even though he trusted Yosef, but he wanted Yosef to see how important it was to him. I saw another answer, and this is what we shared. It is beautiful that there's a well-known medrash that tells us that in order to be a pharaoh in Egypt, you had to be fluent in all 70 languages of the world. That was one of the rules of being a pharaoh. You needed to know every language so that you could communicate and interact with your world power. You had to be able to interact with everything. So when Yosef came out of prison, the Medrash tells us, Paro starts talking to him, and Yosef is one of the Shvatan. She starts talking to Paro in Lashon Kodesh, in the Holy Tongue. Yeah? Somebody speak to you at Evrit, that you don't speak Hebrew? What? Yeah, she starts talking to Paro in Lashon Kodesh, and Paro has no clue what he's talking about. Now until then, he wasn't caught, because nobody else knew Lashon Kodesh. Nobody else knew it either. So nobody knows it. So, yeah, all right, you, you, you know, you're the expert in the room when nobody else knows. But Yosef starts out, and Paro's clueless. There's no clue. So Paro asks Yosef to take an oath that he's never telling anybody. And Yosef agreed. So Yaakov had the foresight. It's called Raya Senailat. Yaakov knew that it's not an easy thing to get Paro, especially to allow Yaakov to be buried outside of Egypt. Why? Because when Yaakov came down to Egypt, the famine stopped. He brought blessing to the land. And he was concerned that Paro would purposely want him buried in Egypt. So he had foresight. He told Yaakov, he told Yosef, take an oath. Why? This way, when you come to Paro and you say, my dad wants to be buried in the Mara Samachpel, in the land of Canaan. And Paro says, I'm sorry, I need him buried here for the blessing. And you say to Paro, but I took an oath. What's Paro going to say? You don't need to keep your oaths? Ooh. Oh, brother. Oh, you say, oh, Paro, I need to keep an oath. You're out of a job. Right? If I want to keep an, an oath, is an oath. So therefore, Yaakov had Yosef take an oath to, so that Paro would have no answer and he would be forced to allow Yaakov to be buried uh, outside of Mitzrayim. Now, why do you want to be buried in Eretz Yisrael? So this is well known that uh, Rashi tells us that um, when it comes to the time of Tchias HaMesim, so everybody's going to be resurrected in the land of Israel. And anybody who's not buried in Eretz Yisrael is going to roll to Eretz Yisrael in the ground. So Yaakov wanted to, he didn't want to go through that specific process. 
another answer given is that he didn't want the land, uh, he knew the land was going to turn to lice. Okay? And he didn't want to be buried amongst the lice for whatever reason. I don't fully grasp what the problem is exactly. Um, but the question they ask on that, the MRAMS asks, why didn't he ask to be buried in Goshen? So let Yaakov, according to this reason, let him be buried in Goshen. The, the plagues didn't impact Goshen. So the Mariyama says that Yaakov was actually asking this out of Kvot Shemayim, because if Yaakov would be buried in Goshen and the plagues wouldn't ha- happen in Goshen, then Paro would never see the, the hand of God fully. He would say, oh, you know why the plagues aren't happening in Goshen? Because Yaakov has the blessing. And go- so therefore, it would remove the power of HaKadosh Baruch Makos. That was another reason why Yaakov wanted to be completely out of the land so that it wouldn't interfere in any way, shape, or form with the future plagues. That's what, he was, that's what it means when he was afraid of the lice. was afraid of the lice. He was nervous that when it came time for the plagues, that's going to interfere with the message of, uh, with the message of HaKadosh Baruch Okay? I'm going to lay down with my fathers. Fascinating expression. He says, he doesn't say, I want you to lay me to rest over there. He says, I want to be buried amongst them. So Rabbi Yisak Zoberstein says that it seems to be a little redundant. I want to be laid down with my fathers and I want to be buried in their burial places. What's the difference? He has a beautiful idea. He says that the, when you have a righteous person in any generation, people see the previous generations through that person's actions. See, when somebody passes, this is why, this is such, I, I think about this every time we say Yisgar and Shul. You guys, every time we say Yisgar and Shul. And one of the ideas that always enters my mind is we say Yisgar every year and every Yomtev, like over and over. Like we're saying Yisgar and it's, it's my same parents, not that I'm, you know, not that I want to say Yisgar for my parents, but why am I remembering it again? Like why now? What's it again? And Specifically around the Yom Toivim, when we're supposed to take stock of our relationships, both with people and HaKadosh Baruch Hu and who we are as Klal Yisrael, specifically during these, these times, we have to remember that when somebody, somebody who passed away, Avram Avinu, let me ask you a question, Avram Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, go back all the way then, imagine if they were alive today. Do you know what type of generation we would be? Just to be able to look at Moshe's face for a second. Just picture that. Picture Avram Avinu walking into our room right now. It's wild. I would be a different person. And therefore, I have to constantly remember previous generations because I'm every moment I'm still hurting from that loss. And that's what I'm mentioning from our parents. Imagine having a parent or a grandparent, and something that we respect about them entering the, the room, not just for us, but for a community, for a family, for a show. We would be better. We would be better. And therefore, it's a constant loss. And therefore, we constantly say Iskar, because we're recognizing that when you have a, a previous generation, the, the way that they lived, even if it wasn't necessarily Mitzvah, they weren't even observant. The way they carried themselves very often, not everybody, there are people who didn't make right decisions in this world, that's true. But very often, the, whether it's a simplicity or a basicness, I mean, they, 
there's a value that has given over that people who have never met them will not gain from anymore. And that's a, con- that's a constant loss. That's a constant loss because people who haven't met them will never have. And therefore it's important to uh, always go back to that Yizkar. And therefore it says in like this. He says, When a tzaddik passes away, they take with them the sweetness of the previous generations too. Because they saw, we see the generations before us. And they see the generations before them. I'm buried in their burial place. Means when a person passes away, they take with them also the people that they met and those values, um, those values as well. Okay. Now I want to share one more idea, which is when, um, about biases. There's something else that we shared with Timon Chamarev as, uh, in Shul as well. Uh, such a beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful idea. Um, Yaakov asked Yosef to bring his, himself, to, to bury him in, in the land of Canaan. And he gives an excuse as he asks for this. This is really, really incredible. He says to Yosef, listen, please, I want you to, be, to bury me amongst my forefathers. And in Parak Memches, Pasuk Zayin, in chapter 48, verse 7, it said, he tells Yosef, Va'ani, and as for me, Bevoi bipadan, when I came from Padan Aram, Mesa Alai Rachel, your mom, Rachel. And remember, Yosef is the son of the wife who's not buried with Yaakov. So when Yaakov asked Yosef to bury him in the land of Canaan, where does he say, bury him in the Mars Machpela? What's Yosef probably thinking? Why with Leah? Why not with my mom? And not only that, you're asking me to do something for you that you didn't do for my mother. Not only why aren't you buried with my mother, but you didn't bring my mother to the burial place of Avram and Yitzchak and Adam and Chava. She says, as for me, I, when I came from, Mesol I Rachel, Rachel passed away from upon me. Be'eretz Kanan Baderech, when we were traveling on the, the land, Be'od Kibras Eretz Lavader Fossil, there was still a way to go on the way to Ephras, Vek Bereh Hashem, and I buried her there, Be'derech Ephras, on the road, He Beis Lachem, which is Beis Lachem. He gives all these, he says, even though I didn't bury your mother, and you should know where exactly I buried your mother. So what is he saying over here? So there's a, an incredible Rashi. Rashi comments. He says, Yaakov's telling Yosef, although I trouble you to take me to be buried in the land of Canaan, even though I didn't do this for your mother, you should know it's because she died in Beis Lechem. Says of Maisha Hadarshan, Yaakov continues to apologize and he says, and don't think that it, it was raining. It wasn't raining. Rain is not what prevented me from carrying her to Hebron. This isn't so. Because, he says, we were traveling, it was dry season. And I did not even take her there to be buried in the land. I know you have feelings against me, but you should know that it was the word of Hashem that I buried her there so that she could be, she can aid her children when Nebuzaradan is going to exile them, and they're going to pass by Kevarachel, and she's going to be Mavaka Albanel, she's going to come out and, and uh, daven for them. Why didn't you, you know, the question is, let Yaakov tell Yosef, you, uh, you know, I'm asking you to bury the mother of you want to know why your mother wasn't buried there? Hashem told me. Hashem told me that she should. She has to be buried on the side of the road to daven for a klal Yisrael. But he gets it. He says, no, it wasn't the dry season. And it was the path and the dish. And it goes into all these details. End the discussion. Why does he have to say anything? So the Tolna Rebbe. It's beauty. I, I, I love it. The Tolna Rebbe says, quoting Rebbe Chaim Shmuel Levitz, that Yaakov was... 
personally aware of a, um, a psychological f- phenomenon that exists in each of us. And that is, if you are to hear a baskal, a voice from heaven that says, bury her here. Bury her here, not there. The one who hears this baskal, the one who hears this voice, needs to suspect that I'm hearing what I want to hear. If, in fact, it would have been a schlep to bury Rachel, Mama Rachel, in Hebron, or it was raining, or it would have been far off the road, Yaakov would have had a personal agenda to not muddy his shoes, even in the slightest fashion. And he says, you know what, I actually would have brought Rachel to the Mars and because I don't know if that voice that I heard was real or whether it was just my mind telling me what I want to hear because it was just easier for me. And therefore, Yaakov is making a statement to Yosef. He says, I know Hashem wanted me to bury her. It was a perfect setting. It was perfect weather. It, was, it, it wasn't any harder to get her to Hebron than it was the, the, to Kever Rachel, to that spot where HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It wasn't far. It would have been so easy. And therefore, I know that it was the voice of Hashem because there was no other way that I would have gained from it. I was, Yaakov was admitting a, um, like, that like any human being, he could be an Agei Abedover. He could be an Agei Abedover. He could have his uh, ulterior, he could have his uh, ulterior motives or a little bit of uh, thing in there. And, uh, the, you know, the Gemara Sanhedrin tells us that a Kohen Gadol is not allowed to serve on a court that determines a leap year. You know, Kohen Gadol is the biggest tzaddik, he's the biggest Gadol. He, let's say he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Kohen Gadol is allowed to be a member of the Sanhedrin. But he's not allowed to make a leap year in the Jewish year. He can't, he can't add a month. You know why? Listen to this. Says the Gemara Sanhedrin... Because the Kohen Gadol had to immerse five times and walk barefoot on the stone floors of the Beis HaMikdash when he did the Avaidah of Yom Kippur. And therefore, if you make a leap year, Yom Kippur is going to be in a warmer month. Because it's going to come a month later. <laughs> See, when Yom Kippur comes out the middle of September, you know, it's still air conditioning weather. Gavaldik. When it comes out in October, so now the water in the mikvah is going to be considerably colder and the stone's going to be a little colder. And therefore, you know, uh, he'd be like, hello, Lekayin Gadol. The fact that he made it in and out of the Holy of Holy shows he's no slouch. Yeah, he's, he's a tzaddik. He knows exactly what's going on. It's not, not even like likely that it's going to... But the Misa, as Rabbi Fran points this out, Rabbi Fran speaks about this idea, that's where I got it from. He says, there are people who have, or Negea. Negea, yeah, there, there's something you could personally gain from this, even if to make your life a little bit more comfortable, we have to make sure that when we're doing something, if we have our personal game, make sure it's really the Ratzon Hashem. As, as talk to someone else who doesn't have it in it, just to make sure that what we're doing is really, is really uh, done for the right reasons. Uh, all right, so we'll, uh, we'll hold it here for today. Any questions, comments?